from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 29th. Today, a shakeup in U.S. intelligence, the internet trolls trying to influence elections in the Philippines, and a very long race in a very hot place. Dan Coates has been a bit of a dead man walking for more than a year. That's Shane Harris. I write about intelligence and national security at The Post. And Shane has been reporting on the news that was the talk of the intelligence community this weekend. Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, is resigning. After months of anticipation, the president announced that he will be leaving. He is leaving of his own accord, a mutual agreement between him and the president, but he'll be stepping down after having been in that post essentially since the beginning of the administration. And the reason I say that it was anticipated is that he's had a number of public disagreements and points of friction with the president, and it was well known that the president was annoyed with him on occasion. Did you talk to your intelligence chiefs today about the displeasure you had with their testimony? I did, and they uh, said that they were totally misquoted and they were totally, uh, it was taken out of context. So what I do is... I've kind of been looking for the opportunity to get rid of him, but it looks like this is sort of a mutual parting of the ways that had been expected for some time. Well, before we get to some of those points of friction... What actually is the director of national intelligence? Like, what does he do? You can think of the director of national intelligence as sort of like the chairman of the board of the intelligence community. When we say the intelligence community, what we mean is the 17 individual agencies that comprise that organization. The ones that everyone knows are like the CIA, the NSA, the FBI is technically a part of it as well. And the DNI, which was a creation of the recommendations after the 9-11 attacks, essentially is supposed to sit on top of all of them and kind of make sure that everyone is coordinated that there are no gaps. So this is clearly a very important job. Why was it that Dan Coats was having tensions with the president? I think in large part it's because of who Dan Coats is, which is to say that he is somebody who is not a political operative. He's not a loyalist to the president. And he takes the idea, the mantra of speak truth to power, which is what an intelligence chief is supposed to do, very seriously. So when he was asked in congressional testimony to assess the threat, for instance, from Iran's nuclear weapons program, he said what was true. Iran maintains the largest inventory of ballistic missiles in the Middle East. Which is that the intelligence agencies have assessed that Iran is not trying to build a nuclear weapon. And while we do not believe Iran is currently undertaking activities we judge necessary to produce a nuclear device, Iranian officials have publicly threatened to push the boundaries of Jikpoa restrictions. That ran contrary to things that Donald Trump was trying to say. He talked about Russia. The White House has announced on Twitter that Vladimir Putin is coming to the White House in the fall. Say that again. (laughs) (laughs) You, Vladimir Putin coming to the... Did I hear you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's going to be special. (laughs) The president, I think, felt that Dan Coates was sort of trying to embarrass him when he talked about that publicly. So he was never a loyalist or any kind of person who pledged fealty to the president. He saw his job as to go out there and speak truth to the American people and to the president and to members of Congress. And that just put him politically and rhetorically on the wrong side of his boss. 
So who is going to be replacing Dane Coats? The president has nominated a man named John Ratcliffe. He's a third-term congressman from Texas. He is, I think it's safe to say, a big booster of the president. Well, I remember him as kind of one of the Republican stars from the Mueller hearing last week, kind of grilling Mueller on the Russia investigation. Can you give me an example other than Donald Trump where the Justice Department determined that an investigated person was not exonerated because their innocence was not conclusively determined? I, I cannot, but this is a unique okay, situation. Okay, well, I, uh, you can't. Time is short. I've got five minutes. Let's just leave it at you can't find it because I'll tell you why. It doesn't exist. So he had a kind of question around basic fairness. He was really one of the standouts. And asked, which I'd, I'd say actually asked some quite fair questions. But if you go back, he's for a couple of years now been a pretty stalwart member of this group of Republicans who believe that the Mueller report actually has a corrupt origin in the original FBI counterintelligence investigation from back during the campaign into Russian interference with the election and possible link-ups with the Trump campaign. Predecessor Jim Comey leaked confidential conversations with the president to start, to create the Mueller investigation. So when we talk about things like the Steele dossier, which we've talked a lot about on the podcast. Uh, that this was all based on a house of cards, that this was a fake, phony dossier that started all of this, funded by the Democrats. Ratcliffe is one of the people who says, if you look at this evidence, it could be that there was some kind of conspiracy or effort on the part of intelligence and law enforcement to try and sink Donald Trump's campaign and sort of pin this fake Russia story. He's careful when he talks about this to say things like, I'm not saying that's what happened, but he constantly raises this. He goes on Fox News a lot, and he really is one of the proponents of this idea that there is kind of a deep state conspiracy that was out to get Donald Trump. When you think of those kinds of qualities, that's not what you expect to see in somebody who's about to take over the U.S. intelligence community. Well, is there a sense that that's why President Trump has chosen him as as Coates' successor? Yeah. What we've heard so far is that the president has been impressed both with Ratcliffe's performance during the Mueller hearing, where he really went after Mueller and was, I think, accusing him of a certain kind of bias, and sees him as somebody who is on his side when it comes both to the Russia investigation and the role that the intelligence community and the FBI played in that. So clearly, the president likes the performance and likes the track record that Ratcliffe has presented over the past couple of years. But if theoretically the next director of national intelligence will have to be dealing a lot with the idea of Russian influence in the election, what does it say that the guy who could be the person in charge with dealing with this problem is a person who fundamentally questions big parts of the Russian investigation? I think that he is going to have to explain exactly that to senators if he gets to the point of having a confirmation hearing. We should say that Ratcliffe has never denied that the Russians interfered in the election. His concern and complaint has always centered around whether the FBI inappropriately tried to investigate the Trump campaign around it. That said, any intelligence chief has to be able to look the president in the eyes and say, this is what's happening when it comes to threat X, Y, and Z. Russian interference in the election, we know from here from Bob Mueller last week, is one of those threats. And every time this gets brought up to the president, either publicly or in private, we know he recoils from this because he thinks when you talk about the 2016 election interference that you're raising doubts about whether he was legitimately elected. So that is going to be a problem that Ratcliffe is going to have to say to members of the Senate confirming him, look, I am prepared to talk openly and honestly to the president about the threat, even if I have some concerns about the nature of the investigation into what happened. What is the likelihood that Ratcliffe will actually be confirmed for this job? 
So if it were any other person that fit the traditional profile, I'd say he probably would be confirmed fairly easily, but he doesn't. And there are some early warning signs that it's going to be tough going. Uh, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, came out with a statement on Sunday night saying, essentially, this is a political loyalist. That's why he was picked. And the Republicans will be making a mistake if they elevate him. So that would seem to say that there aren't going to be any Democrats eager to vote for Ratcliffe. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, actually came out with a very interesting statement in which he largely praised Dan Coats, who, remember, was a former colleague of his. Dan Coats served two terms in the Senate. And he didn't mention uh, Ratcliffe by name, but he had this very interesting line at the end. The U.S. intelligence community works best when it is led by professionals who protect its work from political or analytical bias and who deliver unvarnished hard truths to political leaders in both the executive and legislative branches. Very often the news these briefings bring is unpleasant, but it is essential that we be confronted with the facts Dan Coates was such a leader. That reads to me like the ever slightest bit of shade (laughs) being thrown in the direction of John Ratcliffe, who, you know, essentially McConnell saying, look, whoever's going to be in this job, you better be prepared to be somebody who's going to stand up to the president and speak the truth and not just go out there and parrot his rhetoric. That's very unusual coming from Mitch McConnell. If Ratcliffe does get confirmed, where does that leave the state of the U.S.'s intelligence community? Well, for the first time, uh, I think it's safe to say the director of national intelligence will have been someone who was, you know, an overt partisan and, and a loyalist to the president and a big booster and supporter. I think that people within the intelligence community already have a lot of misgivings about that. And not just not just because of the fact there's never been someone like that in the DNI position, but in Donald Trump, you have a president who has constantly assaulted and gone after the integrity of the intelligence community. So it would be a very significant shift in what we think about in terms of the leadership of these agencies. Is there anyone in the president's circle who is serving that role of representing the intelligence community and basically being willing to stand up to Trump or to deliver the truth to him, even if it's difficult? Dan Coats, I think, has been playing that role. Um, And Gina Haspel, the CIA director, I think, has been an example of that. She is someone who has, I think, run her agency, and she's worked there for her entire career, more than 30 years, trying to, in a sense, stay out of the president's crosshairs and maybe not make the same mistakes that Dan Coates did. But by all accounts— Basically not making public statements that can look like she's trying to undermine the president. Yeah, keep your head down, right? I mean, sort of do your job and do not do anything that would put you crosswise with the commander-in-chief. But by all accounts, and I've done a lot of reporting on her time at CIA, she is someone who believes in the truth-to-power mission. She's not afraid to say uh, what she thinks. So you do have kind of in Coates and Haspel two people that represent that speaking truth-to-power idea. But now Coates is essentially gone. It kind of leaves Gina Haspel as the bulwark here for the broader intelligence community to maintain the traditions and the ethics that have always guided those agencies. Do you think that there's anything that John Ratcliffe can learn from Gina Haspel in terms of how to navigate dealing with the president on intelligence issues? Yeah, I think what Haspel has done successfully is to figure out a couple of things. One, how to get across to the president in concise manner, the intelligence each day that he needs to know about what's going on in the world. And, you know, the briefings that she's a part of, that Dan Coates has been there for, are all about kind of boiling things down and condensing them for a president who doesn't like to read long documents, who prefers graphics over text. She's figured that out. And also that if you're going to succeed in the intelligence community, 
you very much have to have the back of your workforce. You have to be there protecting the agency that you work for. That comes naturally to someone like Jana Haspel. She spent more than 30 years at the CIA. She's a lifer. It's going to be very difficult if John Ratcliffe is confirmed to come in and overcome what is clearly a perception that's going to start forming that he's a, you know, that he's hostile to the intelligence community, that he aligns with Donald Trump in believing that they were out to get him during the campaign. So if he wants to succeed, he might take a lesson out of Gina Haspel's playbook and say, you know, you've got to do something overtly to demonstrate that you are here to run the agencies, that you're here to do a job. You're not being sent here on a mission by the president. Shane Harris is an intelligence and national security reporter for The Post. It is essentially a very large room with a lot of computer screens where people are pretty much hired to create hundreds of fake accounts, which they then manage and use to post all sorts of things that are either promoting something, so maybe a product or a movie. I'm Shabani Mitani. I'm the Southeast Asia correspondent for The Washington Post. Shabani has been reporting on troll farms in the Philippines and how these large-scale operations for creating fake online posts have turned into a central part of the political process. It's become so widespread that politicians on pretty much all sides of the aisle, you know, even liberal politicians who have themselves been victims of these practices are kind of turning to these services simply to get elected. Many of these politicians are following in the footsteps of Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte. Back in 2016, he employed these troll farms to spread misinformation. What happened as far as, you know, analysts and investigators could tell is that he attracted this very loose supporters online. They were all posting like, wow, like Duterte is really amazing. You know, we would love for him to be president or whatever. And his social media team and his campaigners, they basically reached out to these people on Facebook, on on Twitter, and they were like, hey, would you like to just continue doing what you're doing? But here's a more scripted thing that we want you to say. Here's what we want you to do. And we want this to be like a coordinated message. Now that these kinds of practices have become more common, Shibani was curious about whether social media companies are doing anything about them. The two main people or bodies who are doing it is, is Facebook themselves. I think in response to all the criticism and negative publicity, they've actually been pretty proactive in the Philippines and also because it's just a, a huge market for them, right? So they have, um, you know, hired a pretty big team there. They're sort of launching news literacy and, and digital media sort of literacy programs there. And they have actually been very, very proactive in in taking down pages. So they've, in recent months, taken down entire networks that were linked to Duterte and his social media manager during the 2016 campaign. We spoke to 
firms and insurers who said that their clients, i.e. the politicians, were thinking of pulling their funding because, you know, they thought, all right, maybe this is done and, and maybe this is over. But they have figured out that Facebook's algorithms find it harder to pick up like memes and photos. So instead <laughs> of posting like words and text, they've moved, you know, more into memes and photos. So yeah, they find ways to make it work and, and it continues to to thrive very much so. And the other you know, entity that's trying to do something about this too is the election commission. They have required that politicians make uh, public the the amount that they're spending on on social media, right? But you know, there are loopholes. So you know, you can declare what you're spending officially, but not what you're spending kind of secretly through the trolls that you're not actually supposed to have. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's imperfect. So there's a limit to how much that they can crack down on this. Yeah, because they still, you know, no politicians fully going to report like all the all the many troll farms that they use, right? It's all still like a pretty covert thing. Everyone we spoke to spoke on a condition that we don't identify them or we don't identify the specific politician they're working for because they've had to sign non-disclosure agreements and so on. So like mm-hmm. while like it's very much an open secret, it's still like very much, you know, not above board, right? And and politicians could get dinged for it. But one of the things that's really interesting too is that the trolls have started attacking the people who are trying to control them. So the election commission, for example, like their staff there get like death threats like pretty much every day, which is insane. Wow. Well, you said that this has gotten to the point where politicians on both sides have recognized that they have to engage with these troll farms and and hire them and use them if they want to have a chance of winning in the Philippines. Has that become more attractive to politicians in other countries, hiring troll farms to sway things in their direction? Totally. So we have spoken to a number of analysts who say that they're studying this really all over the world. And in Southeast Asia, it's a problem. Obviously, in, in the Western world, it's also a problem. And the Philippines is because the troll farms there are just really good and really sophisticated. They're getting a lot of international interest and clients. Uh, so that's something that's that's very much new and it's it's evolved. You know, the Philippines has been known you know, for decades, really, as everyone's call center, right? So, you know, when you're on the phone with AT&T, like, you, you know that you're basically speaking to somebody in Manila who's who's helping you with your problem there, right? And I think that Filipinos, you know, they speak English. There's a very young workforce there that's, like, pretty internet savvy and now forming the backbone of content moderation for, for Twitter and, and Facebook. So it really is kind of like a natural pivot for more international clients around the world. It feels like an arms race situation where you see how other people are benefiting from hiring these troll farms and that becomes all the much more attractive for everyone else to do it. Yeah, for sure. I think that that we're seeing that places like India and Indonesia where, you know, if, it, if it's if it's sort of proven to have an impact for you, then then why not try to figure out a way that you can make it work for yourself, right? So it's like, you know, we've really reached a point where like it's it's going to be really, really hard to control. And all the troll farms we spoke to are like, yeah, I mean, you know, they can try to regulate it as much as possible, but we're just going to find new ways to evolve and, and, and change our tactics. Right. And I think that's that's um, kind of the reality that we're facing in many countries around the world today. Obviously, the U.S. in the 2016 election was a victim of troll farms in Russia. Do you think that these are going to become more of a problem for the U.S. in coming years and that 
we could see a world in which U.S. politicians are hiring troll farms, if they're not already, to try to influence political discourse online? I spoke to somebody actually who who tracked the Russian influence in the U.S. election in 2016, right? And she was saying that, you know, people really have underestimated for so long how structured these industries are. And, you know, while everyone in the U.S. has been so focused on this, like, international boogeyman, right, in this case, Russia, there are sort of these these rumblings also happening domestically. The Philippines is actually kind of similar to the U.S. in that it has a really sort of like robust advertising, media, marketing landscape. And so it's like not unforeseeable that those people could quite easily pivot to doing stuff that's more like social media geared, right? And even if it's not sort of troll farms in the same way, like what you have in the Philippines, which relies on, you know, pretty much cheap labor and and a young labor pool. There are ways for people to kind of influence narratives and, and discussions online. And it's also very unclear, like, what social media rules for campaigns are. And I think Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, none of them have made their their terms clear, right? When it comes to what you can and cannot say, this idea that you can also like boost a post so you can like pay Facebook basically to have a post be be shared with like certain demographics that that, that you want to target, right? So like what's kosher and what's not, like what's where's the red line? I think that that still hasn't been drawn up, right? And as long as that that is a sort of unclear or sort of gray area, then I think it's going to be easy for politicians to kind of dip their toe in onto the side that might be a little a little murkier. Shabani Matani is the Southeast Asia correspondent for The Post. And now, one more thing. My name is Rick Mace, and I'm a sports reporter for The Post. Rick has been reporting stories on how the changing climate is transforming the world of sports. And recently, he went to the Mojave Desert for the Running with the Devil ultramarathon race. Um, Got like 3,000 pounds of ice out there for everyone. The water on the course is going to be warm. We just don't even attempt to try to keep it cool. You're going to ice your bottle first. Give it to the volunteer. It's exactly 7 a.m. and about 70 long-distance runners just hit the course for the Running with the Devil event, which features a full marathon plus a 50K, 50 miles, and 100K races. Okay. Thank you. That's good. Yeah, I think that's enough. Climatologists say the Earth's hottest places are only getting hotter, and Las Vegas, in fact, is the fastest-warming city in the country. Ultra runners are kind of a different breed. They're not just racing against the clock. They're kind of racing against themselves. They want to test their limits. They want to see what their, their body's capable of. And not just their body, they want to see what their mind's capable of. I'm a biophysicist who studies yeah. animal motion, so <laughs> <laughs> might as well do some experiments on yourself. One of the runners we met is a college professor named Martin Grubel. He competed in this race last year and really struggled with the heat. So I, I lost about, uh, you know, eight pounds at this race last year. 
and was crawling at the end. While a lot of the runners we met were, were veterans, they've done a lot of ultras, they've done a lot of marathons. We also met Ryan Mashinsky. He's a 21-year-old, trained for nearly a year for this, but nothing really prepared him for the heat and the elements that he found in the desert. It, it was just like, it was just killing me. And, I, and once I got to about mile 35, I just had to like walk and then jog and then walk and then jog. At the 44-mile mark, he was allowed to have a pacer, and then his mother took over for the final three miles. He's determined. He knew he would make it. The best thing I heard today was you saying that you brought him into this world. Oh, yeah. You, you get him to the finish line. I got to get him to the finish line. <laughs> it's not just the events in the desert that are impacted by heat. From the Olympics to the World Cup, event organizers are already having to make adjustments to competition schedules and start times. For example, next summer's Olympics in Tokyo, the marathon's going to start at 6 a.m. This year's World Track and Field Championships, they take place in Qatar. The marathon there is going to start even earlier, at midnight. Climatologists suggest more dangerously hot days, more oppressive conditions, and the sports world needs to start readying itself. Rick Mace is a sports reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Go to postreports.com to read more about the stories featured in today's show and to catch up on recent episodes. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.